Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking, where we dive deep into regional headlines. I speak with leading policymakers and business leaders. I am Katie Jensen. On this week's episode, we turn our attention to the war on Captagon, with millions of the highly addictive small white pills regularly manufactured and smuggled from Syria across the Middle East and beyond. We speak to Caroline Rose, the director of the Strategic Blind Sports Portfolio and project on the Captagon trade at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy, to ask if welcoming President Assad back to the Arab League will stop the flow of Captagon or whether the illegal drug trade provides too much of a cash cow to the conflict-ridden country, and the true extent of the epidemic and its growing influence on the world. Ms. Rose, thank you for joining us on Frankly Speaking. Now, in May, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad attended the Arab League summit in Jeddah for the first time in 12 years. Now, this marked a significant step towards rehabilitating Assad into the Middle East. Some experts believe this was potentially one way to try and stop the flow of drug trade coming out of Syria. Frankly speaking, is this doable or is the Assad regime too addicted to the drug trade revenue? Certainly, I think that's the question of the hour um, as we see normalization efforts advance. And we've seen a number of direct forms of cooperation with the Syrian regime through the form of working groups and uh, informal deals that have been made with Damascus. But I don't think that it is possible possible to see the Syrian regime significantly or genuinely crack down on Captagon production and trafficking, specifically um, with and particularly in relation to their production processes, not only because it provides a large source of revenue for the regime, but it also upholds a very delicate system of power and patronage inside of regime held areas that the Assad regime has relied on throughout the civil war. When you look at the actors that are very heavily implicated in the Captagon trade, and these are the big players such as Maher, um, uh, Maher al-Assad, Samer al-Assad, Wasim Badia al-Assad, many of them cousins or siblings or relatives of Bashar al-Assad himself, or members of Syria's very, um, very deep and very influential security apparatus. They all have a role to play in continuing and keeping up the Syrian regime's hold on power and territorial control across the country. And because of this, uh, the Captagon trade really does provide not only the revenue source, but the power and legitimacy and credibility that many of these actors are seeking and President Bashar al-Assad himself is seeking to uphold. So I don't see the regime genuinely cracking down. I think they're going to try and have their cake and eat it too, um, in the sense of denying production and trafficking, conducting a seizure here and there, but bloating numbers and conducting cosmetic interdictions as a show of goodwill, but quietly continuing their role in the Captagon trade. 
Well, you say that, Miss Rose, but on the 8th of May this year, just days after the Arab League took place, a joint Saudi-Jordanian-Egyptian airstrike took out the infamous drug kingpin Mehri Ramathan. Now, he was inside Syrian territory. Surely such a strike could not have happened without the consent of the Assad government, don't you think? Is this the price that Syria had to pay for rehabilitation? Certainly. And I think that Ramthan, if you look at, you know, who he was and the player that he was in the Captagon trade, he was a huge influential uh, trafficker and smuggler in the South. At some points in time, was close with the Syrian regime, but then at others, wasn't necessarily. And so when we look at the core key figures that are close with the regime and are crucial to the Captagon trade, Ramthan is important with trafficking, but not necessarily with production. And because of that, I think that he was an easy uh, and smaller fish, so to speak, that the regime could give up as a show of goodwill for the Jordanian government. And this, of course, coincident or not coincidentally, uh, happened just a few days after Jordan, Iraq, and Syria agreed to form a working group that would coordinate cross-border security matters and also crack down on narcotics trades like Captagon. So this really was an opportunity for the Syrian regime to, quote, show that it was genuine about cracking down on the Captagon trade. But it's notable that while Ramthan was, was given up, a number of other key individuals were not. And it's very likely that the regime is going to continue to protect them and try and find ways that they can further move the Captagon trade um, uh, underground and, and blur the lines between the regime and other actors that are, that are involved in the trade. So still quite a lot of subterfuge going on. I want to ask you a little bit more about Mohi Ramathan because he's been called the Captagon King. You said he was less involved in production. Just how important was he? How big was his business empire? And how do you think his removal is going to impact both Syria as well as the region? Ramthan was one of the most notable Captagon traffickers uh, in, in the South. And the South was it has grown in importance in the Captagon trade as traffickers have tried to find routes um, uh, outside of maritime routes through the Mediterranean Sea that could serve as a pathway to Gulf destination markets. And Ramthan um, was close with, with the 4th Division, close with the regime for, for a matter of years. He operated a very large network of traffickers uh, that you know would be enlisted and recruited. Many of them were local tribes or traffickers that had been participating in illicit trades for, for decades. And so his network was extremely large and he was responsible for trying to export the Captagon trade out, out of Syria. That being said, he was arrested by the regime uh, just a few years earlier, and uh, he was believed to be on the outs with Damascus for quite a time. And while he was still a notable figure in the trade, um, he was less anchored to the 4th Division and the very core of the Syrian regime in these latter years. And because of that, we believe he might have been a, an easier target for the regime to give up for Jordanian intelligence and the Jordanian military. So let's talk about some of the other kingpins, because alongside Ramathan, there's also some major players in places like Syria, Lebanon and Iraq as well. What do we know about them? 
How is the removal of Ramadan going to affect their business? And when we look at the readmission of Syria into the Arab League, what does it mean for their business? Is it going to be more challenging for them to continue their drugs trade? I think that Ramadan's killing it has really served a message to a number of traffickers that are not as closely affiliated to Hezbollah, to the fourth division, and to the other key players of the regime aligned um, uh, captagon production and trafficking industry. And this message is that they are vulnerable. If you are not in close, close coordination with the Syrian, um, the Syrian regime, then you have a target on your back. And because of that, I think we're going to see much more creative and sophisticated um, uh, ways of smuggling and, and captagon production as a result, as that threat of interdiction is high and as all eyes are on the Syrian regime um, for them to crack down on this trade. And I think that in Lebanon, this is going to be the case for traffickers that are not closely associated with Hezbollah. We also have notable traffickers like um, uh, uh, Mohammed Hassan Duko, who was imprisoned for captagon trafficking um, just a year ago. And in, in addition to that, inside of Syria, I think we're also going to see a crackdown in opposition-held areas on smaller captagon uh, production facilities that exist and could be targeted by the regime. Uh, but when it comes to the larger and industrial-scale captagon facilities that are at the heart of regime-held territory, for example, uh, uh, facilities in Latakia that are not only closely monitored but operated by the Fourth Division and the Syrian regime's security apparatus, I think we're going. We're not necessarily going to see those facilities or the individuals be touched. So certainly an issue that's not going away anytime sooner. Let's go back to basics a little bit. Why has Captagon suddenly emerged as a drug of choice among many youths in this region as well as worldwide? Is it its effect as a stimulant? Is it the price? What can you tell us about this drug? I would say both. I think, I think the price is incredibly cheap. Um, and, and we've seen uh, a variety of different uh, prices per pill, depending on what sort of pill that you're buying. In the Gulf, it's much more expensive, but it also at the same time, uh, we find that Gulf users have a bit more cash to spend. But primarily, I would say that the Captagon, one of its major incentives and the reason why it is extremely popular, users are drawn to Captagon for its variety of different uses. It's not like many other uh, substances where, you know, it's associated with one sort of recreational activity um, or a particular feeling. Captagon make, can make you feel productive. It can stave hunger. It can keep you up at night. It can be used to induce some sort of euphoric feeling. Um, it can suppress trauma. And for all of these, uh, you know, variety of uses, that's why we've seen it become popular amongst a number of different demographics. In the Gulf, we've seen Captagon used recreationally, but also amongst university students studying for exams to increase productivity. We've seen it across the region used by taxi drivers, by lorry drivers and truck drivers that are seeking to stay up at night, um, as well as workers that are looking to you know, work a second shift. Uh, and then additionally, in the Levant particularly, uh, and, and, and other conflict-afflicted areas, we've seen many users being drawn to Captagon to stave food insecurity. So, for example, those who are waiting on bread lines, in addition to also trying to suppress trauma. Um, and so because of that, Captagon has flooded the region and has become one of the most popular substances.
We certainly are seeing hundreds of millions of pills being manufactured and smuggled right across the region. Now, as we uh, film this episode of Frankly Speaking Today, it coincides with the International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking. Would you agree that Captagon is no longer just a regional problem, but one that is quickly escalating globally? Certainly. I think that the Captagon trade, while it's been primarily and almost directly associated with the Middle East and specifically in Syria and Lebanon where they're production hubs. Uh, this is a drug that is seeping um, beyond these regional contours into Europe, into Africa, um, and, and the greater international community. We've seen an uptick in trafficking, particularly overland trafficking uh, through Turkey into the Balkans um, and into mainland Europe. We've also seen Captagon uh, being seized at a number of African ports, not necessarily just in North Africa, but also further south, um, which is extremely notable. And while the belief for many years was that these Captagon shipments were just being rerouted and being redirected back to destination markets in the Persian Gulf, um, we're starting to see that assumption change a bit more as um, we're starting to see more permanent trafficking networks uh, deepen their footholds in mainland Europe and Africa as well and try and grow consumption markets in, in, in these places. You mentioned as well that smuggling is certainly becoming more sophisticated. Would you compare it to the opioid epidemic that we've seen? Would you go as so far as to saying that it's even worse? I wouldn't necessarily say that it's worth a uh, worse. I think that, you know, the opioid uh, epidemic is extremely concerning, not only for the smuggling and trafficking methods that we've seen, but also the fact that the opioid epidemic, particularly in places like the United States, um, it's coincided with a huge uptick in deaths and fatalities. So, um, you know, Captagon, we haven't necessarily seen the fatality rate that we've seen with the opioid epidemic. So I don't want to put that on the same plane. However, in terms of the sophisticated and advanced smuggling techniques, I think that Captagon is definitely, um, you know, competitive in that aspect. We've seen everything used um, really under the sun when it comes to Captagon uh, smuggling uh, capacity. For example, we've seen fruits and vegetables used, machinery. We've seen um, designer bags, school desks. Um, sometimes even drone technology used to smuggle Captagon. Uh, and this counts for not only uh, Captagon shipments that are being sent to maritime ports, but also uh, Captagon that is being seized along overland border crossings as well. And these smugglers are closely monitoring the different shifts in trade, but also interdiction capacity amongst law enforcement entities. And they very much are calculating new ways that they can that they can traffic Captagon to reach new destination markets and carve out new transit markets in the process. Okay, well, let's look at the global picture a little bit because the Biden administration said it would release a congressional approved strategy to curb the flow of Captagon from Syria. Now, the trade primarily impacts Gulf countries and other neighboring countries as well, obviously not the US. So what makes America seemingly concerned about the well-being of the Middle East when it voiced its disapproval over Assad's rehabilitation? I think, firstly, the fact that the Captagon trade was being used and it was relied upon by the Syrian regime as one of the primary, primary, or sorry, primary uh, loopholes for sanctions. 
that was one of the biggest reasons why the United States wanted to uh, establish an interagency strategy. Um, it was a way to fill in those loopholes, tighten them, and ensure that the Assad regime, if sanctions are going to be in place, that they would be effective and that the Assad regime would not receive alternative revenue streams from illicit trades like Captagon. Additionally, the United States had extreme concern over cross-border violence that was associated with the Captagon trade. For example, clashes that were very frequent along the Syrian-Jordanian border and the resulting geopolitical and political agitation that would be that was in the region. And then I would also say, finally, I think amidst normalization discussions, and this really threw a wrench into the United States strategy, but I think has kind of enhanced and emboldened it. Uh, the United States wants to um, really demonstrate that normalization will not be effective and that by having an interagency strategy that upholds not only a counter-narcotic strategy, but accountability for the Assad regime, shaming, naming, and pointing fingers at the actors involved, that this will be something that will show the regime that the United States and its partners will not tolerate um, participation in illicit trades like Captagon. So if the U.S. aims to stop the flow of Captagon, why does it disagree with Arab countries welcoming Assad back into the fold, which seeks to establish the very same thing and seems to be working? Certainly. I, I think that the United States um, is, is vehemently opposed normalization and wants to uphold this interagency strategy as an alternative for, for regional countries um, as they are considering whether to directly collaborate with the Assad regime or not. And while at this point, this interagency strategy is just of that of the United States, I do believe that they will look to build upon this and create some kind of regional mechanism or regional framework for where countries that are trusted and that are proactively trying to combat this trade can collaborate, can share intelligence, can seek United States technical expertise and advice and support in trying to counter this trade without having to directly face the Assad regime. Well, the Captagon Act that came into force in December of last year, but frankly, Syria's narco trade began close to a decade ago. So why did the US take this long to act, particularly after the illicit trade wreaked havoc in parts of the MENA region? Or would you say it is simply the nature of the Biden administration to take a little bit longer to wake up to things? Yes, I think that it, it takes a while. And additionally, I think it's notable that this was originally an NDAA amendment in the previous year. Um, it, it took two years to get it passed. Uh, I also think that, you know, the recognition with, with Captagon as an issue and as a crisis in the region, that took quite a while. It took a while to also compile, compound and compile evidence of the regime's participation in the trade and for the United States to really wake up to the fact that this was not necessarily just any illicit economy that was in, 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 the, in the region, but it was something that had real security and geopolitical implications. Um, but, you know, I think also, you know, just typical bureaucracy as well. It takes very, very long, um, especially in the U.S. legislative system uh, to get initiatives like these passed.
Well, you say bureaucracy takes time, but we've certainly seen some other countries in this region make some real progress. Take Saudi Arabia, for example. Their interior ministry has just launched an ongoing zero-tolerance campaign against drug trafficking, which it says is achieving results. Uh, some police officers were also recently killed in related confrontations. What do you think it was so important for the kingdom to launch this kind of campaign? And why do you think the kingdom in particular has been such a big target for traffickers? Is it primarily because of its wealth? Certainly. I think that its wealth has a lot to do with it. Also, its demographic composition, the fact that there is, uh, you know, a considerable uh, a population of, of youth with a lot of cash to spend. Also, Saudi Arabia's foreign worker population is a target for captagon consumption, especially those that are, you know, trying to work a second or third shift who want, you know, the productive effects, who also want to save sleep or, you know, for example, uh, bypass meals. That has been something. So I think that Saudi Arabia, the, the market really is lucrative for captagon trafficking networks. Uh, additionally, I think that when it comes to their zero tolerance policy, this has been sparked by increased Saudi Arabian concern that as Captagon has grown um, as, as a concern in the region and as a security uh, threat, they also are, are fearful that you know many of these trafficking networks are spilling into their own borders, corrupting their Zakat custom systems, and then also creating internal trafficking and dealing networks inside of the country. And because of that, they've launched this campaign to really crack down on not only consumption, but trafficking inside of the country um, in fear that it will expand over time if not um, if not confronted. So certainly clamping down on drug trafficking, but it's interesting because Saudi also has one of the most progressive approaches to drug rehabilitation. However, it's obviously clear that tackling drug use needs to be addressed at a much earlier stage. Education is incredibly important. What would be your advice about educating members of the public about the dangers of drug use, particularly Captagon? I think that the biggest uh, piece of information about Captagon that really should be better communicated to the public, particularly in destination markets like Saudi Arabia, is the fact that we don't know what is inside of Captagon pills anymore. Um, it used to be phenethylene in the 1960s to the 1980s. Um, when it was phased out into the illicit market, uh, it, it, it replicated that formula for a bit. But really, since the early 2000s, we've seen a variety of different Captagon um, formulas pop up through one of the very few chemical analyses that have been conducted. And each time an, a lab analysis comes out, it shows that there is no uh, there's no uh, typical Captagon formula. And because of that, because of this lack of uniform uniformity, uh, producers can make Captagon whatever they want it to be. And that causes and should spark serious, serious public health concerns. Some really pertinent advice there. This is certainly your area of expertise. So much so, you appeared as a commentator in a recently produced Arab news documentary, which explored the kingdom's war against Captagon. So what can you tell us about this documentary and the investigation behind it? What would you say are the main messages to be remembered? Certainly. Well, this documentary not only did, um, you know, it had its due diligence in terms of investigating the sources of Captagon production and trafficking, 
but really dug into Captagon consumption and patterns amidst uh, uh, consumers in the GCC, which was extremely important. Um, looking at how Captagon dependency was treated, how, you know, what different users' experiences were like, uh, but then also how, uh, you know, punitive measures such as the death penalty and a number of other um, uh, punitive measures were dealt with in the region. And I think that that was an extremely important investigation to really pull back the curtain on how consumption is evolving in Saudi Arabia and also how uh, governments are, are really tackling this issue and confronting this not only on the interdiction side, but the consumption side. And certainly it is a fascinating insight into this new epidemic that's sweeping not only the region, but the entire world. Fantastic job by the Arab News Research and Unit Studies 14-month-long investigation. I know you were a part of it as well. A lot of interviews and research in Jeddah, Mecca, in Syria and Kurdistan, Beirut as well. So, yeah, really fascinating. Miss Rose, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.